The following is a production of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. For more information about the seminary, how you can support it, or applying to become a student, please visit www.gpts.edu. Hello and welcome to another edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. My name is Zach Groff. I'm the host of the podcast, also a student here at Greenville Seminary and a licentiate in Calvary Presbytery, which means I'm allowed to preach on a regular basis or exhort rather on a regular basis in PCA pulpits here in the upstate. But today I have the pleasure of welcoming into the studio by distance, Dr. Christopher Yuan, Dr. Yuan, thank you for joining me. Oh, thanks for having me on, Zach. Dr. Yuan has taught at Moody Bible Institute for more than 10 years now, and his speaking ministry on faith and sexuality has reached five continents. He speaks at conferences on college campuses and in churches, and he co-authored with his mother, Angela, their memoir, Out of a Far Country, A Gay Son's Journey to God, A Broken Mother's Search for Hope. Dr. Yuan graduated from Moody Bible Institute in 2005, Wheaton College Graduate School in 2007 with a Master of Arts in Biblical Exegesis, and received his Doctorate of Ministry in 2014 from Bethel Seminary. He's been interviewed in many media outlets, including Christianity Today, In the Market with Janet uh, Parshall, The Eric Metaxas Show, and The Christian Post. But most importantly, and uh, most famously now, he'll be interviewed by me here on Confessing Our Hope. Right. Oh, man, I uh, hope Eric McTaxis is listening to this most important of interviews. But today we're going to be talking about Dr. Yuan's newest book, Holy Sexuality and the Gospel, Sex, Desire, and Relationships Shaped by God's Grand Story. It's a book published by Multnomah Press, and the foreword uh, is by Rosaria Butterfield. It's a, an eminently helpful book on sorting through some... Uh, famously or infamously murky issues dealing with human sexuality and particularly the challenge posed to the church uh, by the increasing profile, I guess, of same-sex attraction and so-called gay Christianity. Um, Dr. Yuan, tell us a little bit about your motivation behind writing this particular book, Holy Sexuality in the Gospel. What sets your book apart from other Christian books on homosexuality? I would say... um the impetus for me writing my book, it really stemmed from uh, my first book, uh, Out of a Far Country, where it's, it's, it was simply a memoir. Um, I wanted to tell my story, my journey of faith, and how that closely intersected with my my mother's journey. Um, I came out to her, and, and that was kind of drove her to her knees. Um, she wasn't a Christian. But anyway, in that first book, I introduced this concept toward the very end, uh, and I and I called it holy sexuality. And I it was a very short, all my chapters in that book were very short. It's, it's a quick read. And um, I knew that when I wrote that book that I needed to flesh this theological concept out. Uh, so kind of this is the, the result of that, uh, me explaining what I meant when I used this phrase, holy sexuality. And who are you hoping picks up this book to read it? Is this a book that you're writing to those struggling with, uh, with same-sex attraction and identifying as a gay Christian and, and wanting uh, something, something better, something more biblical? Or is this for primarily for Christian leaders and pastors who are seeking to minister to folks and, or even call folks out of a life of sin? Who, who exactly is your target audience? Great question. So, like, the way I kind of explained my new book uh, in comparison to my old book was the first book is kind of hit in the heart, you know, getting the story, kind of opening the doors for people who um, are are really hurting, uh, parents especially, 
Uh, it's even a book that I think an unbeliever could could read. Youth read it. Uh, Christian high schools are using it as a textbook. Uh, so it's just using kind of story as as often the scripture does use, uh, you know, narrative genre to communicate theology, but but really kind of uh, bringing it in and and opening people's heart to this to this topic. Some people weren't even open. My second book is digging deeper, and um, it is whereas the first book was kind of heart. Second book is head and hands. So my my, I would say my target audience uh, is would be Christian leaders, pastors, those who have an interest on this issue, uh, then also those who have been uh, maybe secondarily, even though I definitely think this is where people. Um, I, it, it's really I I I I wanted it to be for church leaders, um, but I also wrote it with with people who are personally affected by it. And then tertiary, kind of a third level, would be uh, really everyone, because my, my whole point in writing this book is uh, to show that a theology of sexuality, even, even though I'm writing this book specifically addressing this issue of same-sex attractions, I wanted to show that, that this concept of homosexuality is really good news for all, um, that, that anyone, everyone, we're dealing with sexual brokenness. Uh, this is a book that can challenge us, encourage us in our walk. For those who are unfamiliar with your personal story, they just caught a couple hints from you in these opening minutes of, of this interview. Can you give us a, a brief overview of specifically how you came to faith in Christ? It's a dramatic narrative that you that you cover in, in like you said, heart-wrenching at times detail in your first book, but how did you come to the point where you were confronted with the person, holiness, and work of Jesus Christ, and then you surrendered your life to Him as He's captured you in His grace? I wasn't raised in a Christian home. My parents uh, weren't Christian themselves. We didn't go to church, so we were completely unchurched. Um, I, I wrestled with saying such attractive from, a, from an early age, and it wasn't until uh, my early 20s that I came out of the closet uh, um, I embrace my sexuality as who I was. And, you know, I said, I am gay. This is who I am. Came out to my parents, devastated my mom and dad. Um, my mom gave me an ultimatum, choose this or choose the family. Um, and I just went back. I was, I was in my, I was in graduate school. I was pursuing my doctorate in dentistry. So I was living in Louisville, Kentucky, went back to Chicago for, you know, kind of just a little summer break told my parents and devastated my mom. Through that crisis, though, they came to faith. And though they first initially rejected me, they knew that they could do nothing other than to love me, which is quite interesting because today you hear the narrative, whether from Hollywood or whether from TV, uh, that Christian parents reject their children, their gay children, and only unbelieving parents or very progressive Christians um, truly love their gay children. But I had the exact opposite experience. My parents were not Christian. They rejected me. They came to faith, and they knew that they could do nothing other than to love me as God loved us while we were sinners, while we were his enemies. So they pursued me. I wanted nothing to do with it. I was in dental school. Unfortunately, got involved in drugs. Of course, not all gays and lesbians do drugs. Some do, and that I unfortunately did. I started selling drugs. I was eventually expelled from dental school just three months before I was to receive my doctorate. Moved down to the south, further south, to Atlanta. And there in Atlanta, I kept doing at that time what I knew how to do best, that was sell drugs. My parents had no clue that I was doing drugs, but they knew that my biggest problem wasn't my rebellion, wasn't 
uh, doing drugs, selling drugs, wasn't even being in a same-sex relationship, but my biggest need was that I did not have faith in Christ. And that was my biggest problem. And they prayed for a miracle. That miracle came. And my mom, she's a prayer warrior. Uh, she fasted every Monday for seven years, once even fasted 39 days on my behalf, because she knew that it was going to just take a miracle. They came to visit me one time. I kicked them out. My dad gave me his Bible before he left, and I threw it in the trash. I mean, that's how... That's how much I hated the gospel. I hated the Bible. So they prayed for a miracle, came with a bang on my door, opened up my door, and on my doorstep were 12 federal drug enforcement agents, Atlanta police, and two big German shepherd dogs. So I was arrested, found myself in jail. Um, I walked around the cell block one, one, it was just three days after I was, I was in, my, in jail passed by this garbage can and lo and behold on top of this trash can was a Gideon's New Testament. <laughs> Took that New Testament back to my cell, began reading it. And uh, that first night I read through the entire gospel of Mark, not thinking that this is going to change my life. But <laughs> I mean, if I were to be honest with you, Zach, I just simply thought I've got tons of time on my hands. <laughs> yeah. I better pass it somehow. <laughs> but as you know, Zach, as your listeners know, the book from which we read, from which we study, from which we uh, glean from, from which we teach from, isn't just ink on paper like any other book. What we have in our hands, the very treasure, the gift from God, is God's breath. It is the breath of God. And it began to convict me. And I, I, I was reading this book and thinking, man, I'm just I'm this bad, bad person. <laughs> and I'm thinking, this isn't good news, as people say it's good news. But it got worse. So um, a couple weeks after I was first incarcerated, I was called to the nurse's office. She sat me down, and he, she gave me some devastating news. And she told me that I was HIV positive. And I just remember thinking that what, how else, how worse can how things just couldn't get any worse. It was just getting worse and worse. And I found myself in my cell by myself. Um, I looked at the metal bunk above me and someone scribbled something and it read, if you're bored, read Jeremiah 29, 11. If I know the plans that I have for you, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you hope in a future. And though those words were written to a rebellious nation two, couple, th several thousand years, a couple thousand years ago, God was telling me that he still had a plan for me. And I had no clue where that plan was going to take me. But he gave me enough faith, enough strength to get through that one day and the next. And through that brokenness, as I was reading God's word, God began to renew my mind through his word. And I realized, most importantly, that I had put my identity in the wrong thing. And that, that's why, you know, beginning my book, that was such a core part. I knew I needed to start there because that is what God needed to break down in me first. Before addressing the morality aspect, I needed to see that for years, I put my identity in the wrong thing, my sexuality, as many of us Christians do as well, unfortunately. The world has bought into it, and I think many in the church, unfortunately, whether it's gay, I'm not just saying that the gay modifier is incorrect, but even modifying and identifying as a straight Christian uh, I don't think is really gets to 
and it buys into the lie of who we are. So that was really instrumental for me to, to put my identity in Christ first. Not My whole world, Zach, was gay. Um, I lived in a gay complex, I mean, a, a apartment complex that was pretty much 90% gay men. I, I bought groceries from what we would nickname the gay Kroger. Uh, I worked out a gay gym. I, I bought a car from a, a, a gay car dealer. And um, just everything around me, the whole world was telling me I was gay. And, and I was uh, confronted with the truth of scripture. I realized that, man, I put my identity in the wrong thing. I'm created in the image of God, but, and my identity needs to be in Christ. So that was really revolutionary for me. Um, and also this concept of heterosexuality, homosexuality, what is God's goal? And we'll get into that later. Uh, but all of this was ruminating while I was in prison. I mean, you can probably guess I had tons of time on my hands. So I had a lot of time to think, a lot of time to kind of reflect on God's word, meditate on God's word. And um, I was, it was, so it was in prison during that, that time in prison that um, I, God renewed my heart, converted me from death to life. I, um, I was sentenced, actually, I was supposed to get 10 years to life. I got six years. Then miraculously, after about a year and a half, the judge called me back to his, his court. I, my sentence was shortened to three years, another miracle. And I just, I, I knew that God was calling me to himself and he was calling me to ministry, full-time vocational ministry. So I, um, I asked my parents to mail me an, an application to Moody, which that was the only Christian school I had ever heard of before. I, I got into graduate school without my, getting my bachelor's. So I needed to go get, go back and get my bachelor's. Um, so I, I went to Moody, I applied to Moody and this is the funny story. I, I needed references specifically from people who knew me as a Christian. So the only people I, I knew were people in prison. So I asked the prison guard, a prison, uh, uh, chaplain and another prison inmate to write my references to Moody. <laughs> so miraculously, they actually accepted me and got out of prison July of 2001, started at Moody the very next month, um, finished at Moody 2005, kind of my master's. In, the, in exegesis and I uh, got my doctorate and then here I am in ministry, just, just a miracle. I, I always tell people that God has a sense of humor because he's brought me to Moody where I'm now teaching in the Bible department. So I went from prisoner to professor, uh, kind of a very interesting uh, resume for, for a professor. <laughs> yeah, that's a dramatic narrative arc from, from prisoner to professor and, uh, and having references even from the prison warden and, uh, and chaplain and an inmate. The, the, those things are things that, uh, that, that make you say it is the case. The truth is, is stranger than fiction. It really is. But, but, but we praise the Lord for what He's done in your life and now how He's using you and, and your deep thinking on these issues to minister to others who are struggling with it, perhaps not as dramatically, right? Perhaps not from behind bars, but certainly um, the, the feelings inside when, when, when people wrestle with these issues are often torturous and tormented. And, and I think what you've done is you provide resources that, that God will use to help people sort through this stuff as they, as they turn to His Word in Scripture and, and, and seek to be renewed um, and to be uh, restored into, uh, into right relationship with Christ. As, as, you, as you mentioned, you start the book, um, you begin it with identity, 
That is the question of who we are and what that's getting down to in the locus of theology that, that, or the, the heading of theology, as we call it here in our systematic theology classes, is dealing with theological anthropology. Would you, yes. a, as a professor now, would, would you unpack that statement a little bit for us, what theological anthropology is and why it's so important to get our theological anthropology right, particularly in this arena, um, and what the negative consequences are in case we don't get it right, in case we get it wrong. The statement that I make in my book is um, that we cannot fully understand human sexuality without first starting with theological anthropology. And, um, you know, often when I speak at churches, I throw these big words around theological, anthrop- uh, you know, anthropology, and people just, you know, they either turn off or they get scared. Um, but it's if we just b- break it down, anthropology, I think that's that's very easy. We'll, we will all know anthropology is simply uh, essentially the study of humanity, um, the doctrine of humanity, our understanding of humanity. Um, and theological anthropology is the study of humanity through the lens of scripture, through the lens of systematic biblical theology. Um, and theological anthropology has, has many aspects, but the two aspects that I bring into this conversation uh, related to sexuality is essentially uh, two aspects that I just want to pull out uh, of theological anthropology and the concept. But one, obviously, image of God, um, the Imago Dei, starting from Genesis, and it's a theme that, that we see uh, kind of laid out throughout throughout Scripture. But also, I mean, we can't just we just we can't just end there, as beautiful as the concept as that is, but simply understanding who we are by the image of God isn't, isn't full without reading a couple of chapters after Genesis 1, specifically Genesis 3 and the fall, and how the doctrine of sin, sin um, how that uh, has so uh, fully uh, and distorted who we are, uh, that even our nature has been uh, affected by the fall of Adam and Eve. And so I talk about original sin uh, and how that is, uh, impacts us, the consequence of the fall. Um, and then, of course, and, you know, when we, so when, oftentimes when we think about sin, people think about it just simply as actual sin, but they don't really consider uh, the very uh, orthodox doctrine of original sin and what that means. And then, especially related to those individuals wrestling with same-sex attractions is this concept of indwelling sin, uh, something that the Puritans uh, talked about a lot, which I think uh, they did such an amazing job of helping us understand temptation, desire, uh, and the struggle that comes with, and and our reliance on the Holy Spirit. Um, So I think having that understanding and beginning there uh, is a great place to start because that really helps answer the question. People say, well, this is just the way I am, or um, I've been this way for as long as as we remember. But when we ask that question in a light of theological anthropology, we'll say, well, you know, this is the way I am. Well, how are you? I mean, is, you know, we from birth, uh, we had a sin nature, that that's the reality of being born human. And um, so that that helps us understand this concept of sexuality much better than any framework. Um, that that others try to start with. That's very helpful, and and as you can imagine, we spend a lot of time here at Greenville Seminary 
pouring over some of the uh, some of the, the the great material from the Puritans on indwelling sin, and and taking great lengths to speak carefully about theological anthropology in our coursework, and and we appreciate that emphasis in this book, and particularly in this issue, and showing not only how biblical theology is so relevant to today, and systematic theology is relevant, but also how historical theology helps inform us as we seek to grapple with uh, hot-button issues in our own day, and, and, and pastorally sensitive difficulties that will face us in the ministry. Your book is titled Holy Sexuality and the Gospel, and you said you introduced the term holy sexuality or the concept of it in your first book with, that you co-wrote or co-authored with your mother. Can you explain this term to us now, holy sexuality? How did you come up with it? What does it mean? And, and what do you mean um, when you use the phrase in the book, God's grand story? How does that shape our understanding of sexuality in a holy direction? If I could just share with you, Zach, my, my, my first uh, suggestion for my title was Holy Sexuality, but the subtitle I wanted it to be Sex, Desire, and Relationships Shaped by Biblical and Systematic Theology. That's really what I wanted. Um, my publisher shot shot me down. <laughs> that was probably wise. <laughs> they, they said, you know, you want people to, to buy your book. Yep. And I said, I, I would have bought, I would have bought my book and probably Zach, you probably would have, but maybe we're, you know, a little bit the minority. Uh, people get scared when we talk about biblical theology, systematic theology. And, and I would say another one of my aims with writing this book was to show the richness, um, the depth of theology um, destigmatize theology, show that we're how we're all theologians, not whether you are or not, it's whether you're a good one or not. I think even an atheist is a theologian, just a bad one. Uh, but also to show how actually theology is not uh, devoid of practice. I, I tell my students at Moody that a bad theologian, bad theology leads to apathy. Truly, it bad, leads to just inaction, just sitting in your high tower and doing nothing. That is bad theology. Good theology, the richness of understanding the character of God and how, how God's understanding enlightens our understanding of who we are in the world, man, that type of theology like drives you out of your seat, compels you into action to just go and share this beautiful truth to the world. So that was my hope to, in a sense, yes, I'm talking about sexuality, but I wanted to almost just to give, give an example of how we can take theology, apply it to an extremely relevant issue grounded in solid, robust, biblical, systematic theology, that then just, I, I almost want people to like read this and be like, like they can't do anything other than to go and to, to love their gay neighbor and to, to change their, like even transform their own marriage life um, to help individuals that are single. Uh, but this concept of holy sexuality in the gospel, sex, desire, and relationships shaped by God's grand story. So God's grand story um, you know, is it's the arc of God's narrative through Scripture, beginning with creation, then going to fall, redemption, and ultimately ending in consummation. And when we understand God's arc um, and, and this redemptive story uh, and how that concept, this beautiful concept, uh, really reshapes uh, and, and, and reconforms our understanding of sexuality away from the secular concept uh, to a, a truly biblical understanding of sexuality in light of God's grand story. Now, we all know that same-sex sexual behavior is sin and lust is sin. And when I say we all, I'm talking about those 
who say that the Bible is true. Uh, and I have a friend who's a college student, and, and I'll make, make this as anonymous as I can, but he has a United Methodist professor. It's actually his academic advisor. And this, uh, this United Methodist is, is your typical United Methodist, fairly liberal person. But even he admitted that, uh, in talking about what recently happened in the United Methodist General Conference and adopting the traditional plan, um, affirming the church's current stance that, that homosexual behavior is against God's word and doesn't comport with scripture, even this professor in the United Methodist Church admitted that yeah, there's really no way to make the Bible justify same-sex sexual activity or behavior, no matter what efforts are being made out there to normalize that kind of behavior and to say that it's, it's properly biblical. There's no way to make that the case. However, when talking about same-sex attractions or sexual right. orientation, it can get a little muddy, or at least it seems to, uh, especially when you look at today's discourse. But you seem, or you do, it's not just that you seem to, you do clear away the fog by sticking to biblical terminology, and and that is uh, desire, temptation, and then sin nature. Can you break that down for us, please, and also explain what you mean when you say that all desire has an end? I think today there is this there's even a debate going on. Um, and, and some even think that it's, it's, it's not, it's, it's on one side, you have people who say same-sex attractions um, are, are not sinful. And then others who are, you know, debating and, and saying, no, it is sinful. And I, I actually, and I will have to full, full disclosure um, before I wrote this book, uh, probably five, 10 years ago, um, I would be one of those people who would say same-sex attractions are not simple. And the reason why I did that was because I equated uh, attractions with temptations. But as I thought more about this, um, and, I, and as I was, um, have been greatly impacted by my friendship, um, my kinship, I call Rosaria Butterfield, my, my big sister, um, and she being an English professor, uh, she has a statement that says, words matter. Uh, as I reflected on the meaning of words, I realized that this term attraction, um, why people are confused about it is because how we define it. Different people define it differently. And in our world where there's so many shades of gray, uh, we as Christians should not be ambiguous ourselves. And I, though I might use the term same-sex attractions, but when I'm specifically talking about morality and what is right or wrong, I then now do my best to no longer use those words and rather use more clearly defined words that are grounded in scripture, that are biblical terms. For example, attraction, though it could include um, maybe kind of overlap with a semantic range of temptation, I think attraction could also mean desire. So as I look at scripture, I said, I'm just going to talk about same-sex temptations and same-sex desires. And when I address that, that is why I specifically had two different chapters, a chapter on temptation, a chapter on desire, and then clearly talked about that, because I think that really clears away the fog, and we're able to have a more constructive discussion looking specifically, because if we say, what does the Bible say about attraction? Well, we don't find the word attraction in the Bible, so how do you define it? And then if you're going to define attraction as temptation, well, then let's just use the word temptation, not the word attraction. And when people simply use the word attraction to to be synonymous with temptation, I would push back and say, actually, I think 
the word attraction could also, and maybe is more closely related to the term desire. And when we look at the term desire, it's very interesting because uh, in the Old Testament, uh, the Hebrew word for desire is actually the same word that we would translate as covet. The New Testament, uh, the word that we translate, uh, the, the Greek word for desire is the same word that we translate as lust. So this, this concept that many Christians have, that somehow desire turns into lust, that somehow desire turns into, uh, you know, uh, bad desire. Um, I didn't see that substantiated in, in Scripture. Actually, wrongly or desire is sin. Um, and uh, so that was really helpful for me to, uh, to be able to communicate that to others. And also this concept of temptation, that we need to remember uh, Jesus Christ himself was tempted in every way, was without sin. Of course, um, we, Jesus was unable to sin, what we would call uh, the impeccability of Christ. Uh, but and yet that doesn't mean that he didn't suffer um, as much as we did, because as as I think um, Dr. Westcott, uh, you know, kind of uh, clearly communicated, I quoted him in my book, uh, he, he talked to us about that the struggle is really measured by uh, the intensity and the length of our struggle. And if you think about it, Jesus suffered to completion, whereas for us, we suffer partially. We suffer, we struggle, and we give in. Uh, and sometimes on a good day, it might be, you, you know, you struggle longer, but, you know, it's it's only Christ who suffered completely and struggled completely without ever giving to sin. And, and that's just an incredible encouragement for myself um, as I resist and put to death my indwelling sin, as I resist temptation. Uh, and I tell people, it's not if you're tempted, but when you're tempted. It's not whether you're tempted, but what you do with it. Uh, and, and by the by the power of the Holy Spirit, uh, we're able to, by God's grace, to flee temptation um, and not allow our temptation to turn into desire. One of the outworkings, I, I just want to give one example here from page 63, and this is one of the outworkings of these careful distinctions that is so helpful. This is a section here of, of four short paragraphs. I'm going to read it. Uh, quickly, but not too quickly, so folks can follow along. And and Dr. Yuan, people will still be motivated to buy your book. I'm not giving away the whole farm here. Oh, that's but, okay. But Good. I think that this is a really helpful uh, passage, especially as we think about this issue. First, we need to delineate different types of same-sex desire. How? By looking at its end. The end of same-sex sexual desire is sexual intimacy between two men or two women, which is sinful behavior. If the end is wrong, then the desire is wrong. Thus, same-sex sexual desire, per se, is sinful. However, not all same-sex desire is sexual or erotic. There's also non-erotic same-sex desire. It's obvious that longings to form deep, non-erotic, platonic bonds of friendship with other members of the same sex are certainly blessed by God. Yet, we shouldn't equate such platonic desires with sexually related desires. The God-given reality is that everyone desires healthy, non-sexual, same-sex friendships. If a purely platonic desire for friendship, intimacy, companionship, and community were a part of one's sexual orientation, then everyone would be, quote, gay, end quote. Conflating platonic desires with sexual desires blurs the boundaries and ultimately makes the concept of same-sex attraction meaningless. Even gay neuroscientist Simon LeVay considers platonic desires for friendship to be an unreliable criterion for sexual orientation. 
If sexuality includes platonic desires, then this implies that same-sex attracted individuals are inherently better at making same-sex friends than those with opposite-sex attractions. This is altogether not true. Simply put, platonic desires for friendship are not exclusive to or even stronger in those with same-sex attractions. These are affections common to everyone. And especially that last point is so helpful, because as we heard um, in a PCA church in St. Louis last year at the Revoice Conference, this claim was made that those who experience same-sex attraction or desires are inherently better at forging same-sex friendships than those who are heterosexual or, or, or exclusively attracted to those of the opposite sex. You go on uh, talking about some other familiar mistakes that, that we could get into um, if you want, uh, particularly in the area of romance. And, and if you want to unpack any of that, please go ahead. But this was so helpful. I talk about how desire is teleological, telos, Greek word, end, purpose, goal, aim. And I wanted to lay out how, because I, I, I guess I'm, I'm very much a black and white individual, hence the, my book is, the cover is black and white. I, I like to think in categories. So as people kind of just make these broad statements, use kind of ambiguous terminology, I think, you know what? I don't want to do that. I want to play, and I'm talking about just Christians as well. Uh, words that can confuse, words that, you know, though I say, well, when I say gay, I'm not talking about attractions, which some people do. I, I don't use that term uh, myself. But then, you know, people argue when I use this term, I don't mean this is who I am. I just mean attractions. And I, I argue back and I say the whole world use the term gay as who we are. So you can't just, you know, somehow redefine how the world views this one word. But so it's a very important that we need to very carefully look at uh, the words we use, the categories, and, and the frameworks that we that we that we rely on, and this concept of uh, desire, as I thought about it, uh, that it is more than just simply an object, an end, but it's also the purpose. What we want to do with that. So that's why we talk about this teleological nature of desire. And and I kind of get this concept from Matthew five, the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus says, "If a man looks lustfully after a woman, that's the end." So in other words, his desire is for the end. The object would be a woman that's not his wife, but not just that's the object, but he then wants to have sex with her. Well, then that end is incorrect, which then makes the desire incorrect. So that's really where I get this concept of a teleological um, understanding of desire that helps us to, to get this. But what you read there was really refuting exactly what you talked about. Uh, there are some... Uh, believers in Christ and even especially among the PCA and, and other denominations. And I think a lot that are relying more upon more a Catholic understanding of anthropology and sin than really a Protestant reformed understanding. Uh, but they're, they're pointing to this concept that somehow people with same-sex attractions are relational geniuses. I think that's, that's even a way to talk about it. And, and that's, they don't, Follow that that logic out because it's ludicrous because that would make my mother a lesbian. She wants relationships with other women, to be friends with them. And she has many best friends, people that she disciples, people that mentor her. Um, and when she desires those, uh, and she's good at making friendships with women, in no way would that make her lesbian. To, to think that... Uh, a desire for same-sex platonic friendships is part of the realm of sexuality, then broadens out the, the, the concept of sexuality so broad that this would make 
everyone gay, everyone straight, really everyone bi. Um, so I, I kind of wanted to show the the inconsistency and, and how it really didn't make sense when we do that. But then I talk about romance because I think that's another thing that I see, it's like those coming out of Revoice and Spiritual Friendship, um, they, they say same-sex relationships are sinful, same-sex desires, uh, they always call it same-sex lust. They, they don't see the, how desire and lust is the same word in the Bible, uh, but they say same-sex sexual lust is wrong, but everything else is okay. And that's why I, I wanted to say you have same-sex not uh, same-sex non-erotic desires, um, but we can't just conflate them all into one. And I differentiated between same-sex romantic desires, which are sinful, and same-sex platonic desires that are not sinful but are not in the realm of sexuality. And that is such a helpful, helpful distinction to make. Um, right after that section I read, you have a section awakening romance. And you bring this up. Another familiar mistake is the failure to recognize that some same-sex desires, although non-sexual, are nevertheless romantic, not platonic. Romantic desires and platonic desires are not equivalent. It's crucial to distinguish between them because the end of romantic same-sex desire is not God's will. And you flesh this out over a series of pages. And I, I bring all that up just as uh, to do my, my due diligence as, as someone who wants to promote your book, to encourage people to pick it up and to read it for themselves and to benefit from it as they engage with this conversation and, and seek to minister to those who are, in fact, uh, battling same-sex attraction and particularly erotic attraction and desires uh, in their own Christian walk. And I think that brings us to the next part of the interview here as we push forward into your book. You, you, you have a couple chapters on marriage. You have a chapter on singleness. I, I want to focus on the chapter on singleness in particular. Um, in, this, in this chapter, you, you've included a biblical theology of singleness, which is so helpful. And, and we've lost a correct understanding of being unmarried and seem to have forgotten that our Lord and Savior Jesus was, in fact, a single man in his earthly ministry on earth. Yes, he's the bridegroom to the church in an eschatological sense, in a spiritual sense, but, you know, he never married uh, a woman when he walked on earth. Uh, can you explain how singleness is best understood in light of God's grand story? We really forget how completely radical and countercultural it was for a 30-year-old Jewish rabbi to be unmarried in first century Israel. Um, when we look at some of the extra-biblical literature uh, during the first century, around the first century, uh, we will see that uh, the average age for a man to marry was around 18, uh, and almost to be 20 to 20 to be 20 years old, or even 22 years old to be unmarried. Some some even said that these men were accursed. Um, all the examples of the rabbis that we have. Uh, during that time period, were all married except for one, and, they, and this rabbi was harshly criticized for being single. So the fact that we have a single rabbi, a single Jewish rabbi in Hellenistic Israel, you know, Israel was radical. Um, but I think that was very intentional to show how um, the coming of the, the new covenant inaugurated uh, so many incredible things, and, and so this biblical concept, creation, fall, redemption, restoration, and understanding how the people of the Old Covenant, they really grew, um, how there was such an emphasis upon family and upon having children, and singleness was really shunned. But then the New Testament grows, and you have statements like 
Jesus says, who's my mother? Who's my brother? Who's my sisters? And he wasn't rejecting the family. He was actually pointing to, so just as marriage is a shadow of the eternal reality, as you mentioned, Zach, of Christ being wed to the church, um, family is also um, natural family, blood family, nuclear family, is actually just a shadow of the eternal reality, which is the family of God, the eternal family. So I, I talk about um, in one of my chapters, uh, and I named it Spiritual Family, um, how many of our approaches, I would say, in the past on same-sex attractions have been very pragmatic and, and also um, did not do it in light of diagnosing this correctly, and they diagnose this more as a disorder than what it truly is, sin. But it also left the body of Christ, the local church out um, as a second, as an afterthought at best, uh, or just completely devoid of any discussion about the local church. And, and I really believe that healing, uh, transformation, discipleship happens. Uh, the context that God has given us that is in the body of Christ. And yet we've kind of failed singleness, singles and treated them as second best and, and showed that. Uh, so this concept of family that, that though people grew by getting married, by having children, um, by extending their name uh, and their inheritance through their family line, you have a statement like in Isaiah where Jesus, where you're talking about God talks about the, 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 the inauguration of the coming of the Messiah, the suffering servant, where he says that, that eunuchs who obey my Sabbaths, God said, will have something better than sons and daughters. Well, what's better than sons and daughters, the Jew would ask. And first of all, that means that you are a son, you are a daughter yourself of adopted by our heavenly father but even more importantly that you can have children of uh, by your own paul himself was single and yet he had many children he had many sons um, and these are sons uh, that were not begotten by flesh but begotten by the spirit um, jesus told nicodemus you must be born again and this born again concept uh also reflects in the Great Commission. When we make disciples, we are begetting children, spiritual children. And so as single individuals, though you might not be physically married and have a spouse of your own, and you might not have physical children, uh, we need to recognize first that we are daughters and, and sons of God, and that we are part of the family of God, and that we can be, should be and must be begetting children, spiritual children. Uh, so understanding uh, this the biblical narrative in light uh, or singleness in light of the biblical narrative, um, I think is really encouraging and actually is kind of a uh, convicts those of us who have distorted our understanding of singleness and sometimes elevated and almost idolized marriage as if that was the only means from which we can meet, uh, receive love and intimacy. You have an extended discussion in the book on the gift of singleness, uh, which is which is very helpful and. And, and that, that phrase has been thrown around a lot and to, to the abuse of, of people who are single and to the abuse of those who don't want to be single and, and, and all kinds of misapplications. Can you unpack for us a little bit or, uh, of the basics of your teaching on singleness and maybe why it's frustrated some pastors but really is meant to be a biblical corrective to abuses of the teaching on, on all sides of the issue? Yes, yeah. I, I talk about how the gift of singleness is probably one of the most misunderstood gifts. Uh, it's probably one of God's most misunderstood gifts. And um, 
again, you know, as I gave full disclosure before, how I even changed my understanding of, of um, you know, same-sex attractions, whether that's sin or not. I also, uh, in writing my book, uh, changed my understanding to, I, to a more biblical understanding of this gift. Uh, this gift has, I think, been distorted to, to be viewed as somehow a lifelong chosen vocation of celibacy. And I'm, if you'll notice, Zach, I'm very clear not to use the word celibacy, and that was extremely intentional. Like my sister says, Rosaria, words matter. We can't just think that a word um, doesn't have or don't consider whether a word has layers of meaning, of negative connotations. And this word celibacy, um, you know, has, has kind of some negative connotations to the Roman Catholic kind of uh, what's going on, fortunately, with the priesthood there and child abuse. Um, but, but even if it wasn't connected with that, I look at this word celibacy, and I don't found it grounded in Scripture. Actually, the word celibacy is from the Latin word, uh, celibatus. And though it's Latin, we don't even find the word celibacy, celibatus, in the Latin Vulgate. It's nowhere to be find, found there. It's only, this concept is only built upon church history, which again, which church history is extremely important for us to, to know and learn and read about but also realize that just because it happened in church history doesn't mean that it's right. I think that's another mistake that I sometimes often hear. Um, people say, well, celibacy, it's a church, you know, it's, it, it's not for follow church history. Well, but let's, we need to critique church history even and, and, and see if it's aligning with scripture because um, there's a lot of examples uh, where, um, you know, early theologians, they didn't get everything right. Um, and they sometimes they need to be corrected by God's Word. What was surprising to me recently, I'm in medieval church history right now with Dr. McGoldrick here at the seminary, and this is a little aside because it came up last night in a conversation with a friend of mine as we were sitting around playing guitar together. Uh, and he said, do you know when, when, uh, when the celibacy of the clergy was introduced in the Roman Catholic Church? And I was like, yeah, it was 1061, because we just talked about it. And, you know, it's only, I mean, it's really only not even a thousand years old yet as an institution, and it came out of the monasteries, for which there is absolutely no biblical warrant at all. And what else was going on in the church in, in the 11th century? Well, I mean, you had crusades, you had uh, popes killing each other, and, and intrigues, and anti-popes, and, and, and conquerors all over Europe. I mean, it was really a great time to model a lasting institution on. And, and even, when, even when celibacy was introduced to the secular clergy, it was called, to the priests and to the bishops, uh, it took almost 100 years for it to really take effect, because priests, to their credit, especially in France, uh, said, you are not going to take my wife away. I'm not going to put her out just because the Pope says so. Um, I married her, made a commitment to her, and I'm going to take care of her, you know? Anyway, continue. I'm sorry for that aside. I thought it was a historical no, curiosity. A and that, that kind of totally um, amplifies my, my point that church history is so important to read because we need to learn from our own mistakes yes. and see how there's um, rich, so much that we can learn from our forefathers, our theologians that have gone before us, but also learn from many mistakes that were made by the church, by a, 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 a church that was... Um, not what was quite distorted. So this, I don't use the word celibacy and actually critique this concept of celibacy. And if we're just going to be 
as straight, you know, biblical as, as possible. Looking at 1 Corinthians 7 and the word that Paul uses, agamas, um, gamas being married, um, the prefix a or a in Greek means not. So essentially Paul was just, he wasn't talking about any type of vocation lifelong. He just simply was talking about the state of being unmarried. Um, so I specifically, you know, have two chapters on marriage, two chapters on singleness. I actually wanted to intentionally just have one chapter on marriage, one chapter on singleness. And as I wrote it, it became this huge, two huge chapters and I needed to chop it in two. And even still, they're the biggest chapters in my book because I think it's core for us in Iran. When we talk about sexuality, we need to understand uh, a, a good theology of marriage, a good theology of singleness, and how we have sort of distorted both. And um, so with singleness, this gift, I think we've kind of sort of mysticized it and, and thought it's something super special. We've even called it a spiritual gift, which, yes, I can sort of understand because Paul uses the word charisma, which elsewhere is sometimes used as spiritual gift. But every time that Paul does talk about it as a spiritual gift, it's always talked about in the context of the Holy Spirit. Paul never mentions the Holy Spirit in 1 Corinthians 7. And also spiritual gifts such as um, healing or tongues or uh, uh, prophecy. It's actually you're doing something. Singleness is not you're doing anything special that an unmarried person can't do. So the way I take it, take it, then I hope this might seem kind of as a letdown, but I simply just take it as a gift. Charisma is from the uh, Greek root charis, grace. So it's really a grace gift. It's something that God gives to us for our good and for the good of the church. And so understanding in that, that doesn't mean though that there's not challenges, but as I tell people, um, I've spoken to some married people, uh, marriage also has challenges, <laughs> but that doesn't make it then a, not a gift. It, it certainly is a gift. Um, there's challenges, there's blessings. Singleness has challenges, there's blessings. So kind of... Um, Having us understand the need to have a better understanding of theology can actually really enable us to better minister to singles in the church, but also better minister to people who have same-sex attractions, who oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes do find themselves to be single. That is so helpful, and and I think that that brings us into the last section. You said this book is, you know, your first book was Heart. This book's Head and Hands and Action, and, and we're going to talk about some things that we can take away from your book and your work in terms of ministering to those who, uh, who you know, are, are struggling against same-sex attraction or however you want to put it. I, I find it difficult to sympathize or to relate to, to put myself in position of those who are attracted to, to other men right, to men who are attracted to other men. I, I can't personally understand that, but what I can understand is uh, a lot of what I read in the spiritual friendship literature, the longing for deep, lifelong, committed uh, friendship and, and partnership with someone through life. So how does someone like me, then, who, who knows people, who has relatives and, and friends and neighbors who identify as gay, and, and, and maybe even identify as gay Christian and are struggling with, with the ramifications of all of that, what are some things that we can do and that we should do uh, as we seek to love these folks and, and to, to show the love of Christ to them and, 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 and to minister to them? Here's the, here's the fact. The majority of people, um, especially Christians, um, will be married. Uh, for example, you know, at Moody, where I teach, the majority of my students will marry. Praise the Lord, and that and that's awesome. So that leaves many of these 
individuals who then will eventually marry uh, kind of at a almost feeling like they're they're in this difficult position because we're calling individuals who have the same sex attractions to then not follow their desires. Uh, and in some situations, um, it means that maybe God might provide this individual that experiences same sex attractions, a person of the opposite sex that, they, that can marry, like my good friend Rosaria Butterfield and like others that I know. Um, but for, and that's not called to be the, the norm, but that's, that's, that will be um, for many a reality that they that they have to live. I, I think it's really helpful for um, our, the, our our the body of Christ, the church, uh, to do kind of two things before we kind of get into maybe some practical things. But uh, to have a proper understanding of 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 marriage, and and if I can just kind of read a portion of because um, I read this over this weekend when I spoke at this church. It's right from my book. It's actually at the end of my uh, two chapters on marriage. Uh, yeah, it's on uh, page 94. Uh, pastor Ken Smith uh, was a uh, Reformed Presbyterian pastor, uh, retired, and he was basically instrumental in um, pointing Rosario Butterfield to our risen Lord. Um, he, uh, I, I actually just got to see him uh, this week. He's, he's an amazing, if I can just be a quarter of or an eighth of the godly man that he is, um, I would just be so blessed. But uh, he's an amazing man. He, he, he was married to Floyd for 60 years, and they married a little later in life. I mean, not when they were young, like 18, 19, but he was almost 20, almost 30. But they were married for 60 years. She just passed away. And so uh, let me just read this. Uh, After Floyd passing, many tried to comfort Pastor Ken, page 95, with good intentions of mass. Don't you look forward to the day when you're reunited with your wife in heaven? And his response was always, I don't have a wife in heaven, but I'm certainly looking forward to being fully united with Christ. And then he, he kind of talked about this in, in an email. When I, when I was looking in my wedding ring, Pastor Ken said, and deciding whether or not to wear it, I pondered the married vows we had taken. The vows say till death to us part and as long as we shall both, as long as we both shall live. Those thoughts led me to see our wedding as being fulfilled. I mused on the idea of our marriage being fulfilled, and it gave me a new slant on Thanksgiving for dear Floyd. Our marriage was not interrupted, but fulfilled. No need to talk about renewing our relationship as husband and wife in marriage, uh, in heaven. Our marriage was an on-earth institution, and it is now fulfilled. So I took my ring off. Marriage completed. Interestingly enough, this brought me immense comfort, peace, and thanksgiving. So here's the reality. Good theology. Good theology was his comfort. And, and I know, and I continue to talk about how it seems strange that kind of this, this man was talking about his wife in this way. But when we understand our sexuality, when we understand marriage, when we understand our life, in the grand arc of God's amazing narrative story, creation, fall, redemption, consummation, that consummation, yes, Jesus says, Matthew 22, there will be no marriage in heaven. That that it's not that things are going to be some of, somehow this ascetic, you know, monastic kind of crazy reality, but it's going to be so much glorious than anything that we can ever imagine here on this earth. It will be different in, a, in an amazing way. And helping us to see that, that I sometimes tell people, 
I, you know, don't think of marriage or singleness as this temporary state before marriage, but think about marriage almost as this temporary state before eternity. So I kind of jokingly tell people, as a single man, I'm preparing myself for eternity. We will not be wed to one another as individuals, but we will be wed to the Lamb of God, which then points us to this concept of the church. So we're, so we're not there yet. So that doesn't mean that I don't want to make oversimplify it and make it seem like really simple. You just need to kind of just believe and faith, you know, and then, then just, you know, kind of make it just very cliche. But I, I think this is a, re- a really big challenge for us, and I'm pointing to us, every one of us who, and most of you and your listeners are, are married and not single, that challenges us to really understand the family of God. Are we really living as the family of God or not? Because I think in many situations, we elevate our own families, um, this is father, mother, children, uh, above the actual true family. And the way that we look at the New Testament and the early church and the way that the New Testament writers talked about the church, it was actually the church that was higher than their blood relatives. So here's an interesting thought. <clears throat> the relationships that we have that are bound by natural blood, father, mother, uh, cousins, um, brothers, sisters, those are actually temporary bonds. The only bonds that we have that we carry into eternity, into the consummation, are those bonds bound by the blood of Christ. We, if you follow Christ, you are my brother, you are my sister. And I think I'm going to kind of bring up Rosaria a lot because she's had such an impact on me. Her newest book talking about the gospel comes with a house key, I think really gets it that our goal as Christians, as she says, is to, and, and, and what was hospitality about? It's about making a stranger a neighbor and making a neighbor family. That's basically our goal. We want to reach out to others, uh, share Christ, and then, you know, make them, convert them, you know, point them to, and, and point them to the grace that converts us. But then we help and make them family through discipleship, et cetera. And when we understand that helping another individual Christian with same-sex attractions, that that's grounded in union with Christ, that's grounded in the context of the body of Christ and not, not outside the body of Christ, that is really the context from which we help every believer wrestling with any sin. Uh, so the answer is, the problem is sin and Christ yes. is the answer. Um, so I, yes, as a, as a listener right now, you know, whether you're listening right now and, and you yourself, you don't experience same sex attractions, but here's the truth. You don't have to know exactly what I'm going through as an individual struggling with unwanted same sex desires. If you know Christ, if you had some victory over sin, you can help another believer with another sin without actually having to struggle with that sin. Because I think sometimes Satan wants to immobilize us into thinking that I can't help another believer just because I don't struggle with that sin. For example, like um, a heroin addict. I've never shot up heroin, even though I've done pretty much everything else. Uh, But I don't have to know how to shoot up with heroin or do heroin to help another heroin addict. And so I think the beauty of my book was to actually release people and to free them up into ministry, to recognize 
that yes, same-sex attraction might seem like a completely foreign concept to many people, to most people, but when we understand it in light of God's grand story, when we understand it in light of theological anthropology, it helps us to realize this is simple. Sin is a problem. Christ is the answer. And therefore, as a follower of Christ, I can help anyone, even in my own brokenness, even my own sin struggles, to point them to Christ together and point them to the body of Christ. That is, you use the word liberating, that is a liberating truth. And it's, it's something that I, that I was told by a mentor of mine when I was in high school. It was actually a guy I was on the praise team with. And we were having a conversation, and I, I, said to, I said to the guy, you know, how can I help out so-and-so with this issue? I've never, I've never been through that, and, and, you know, everyone knows that in order to bring someone through the fire, you have to have gone through it yourself. And, and he, said, he said, Zach, that's just not true. You don't have to have gone through what that person went through to be able to, uh, to speak truth into the situation in a helpful way. And that was powerful, powerful advice that I've carried along with me. Yeah, yeah. And we've gone down different theological tracks. He's charismatic now. I'm confessional Presbyterian, and, and we're still good friends. Though we did, we're separated by 700 miles, so we don't talk as much. But, um, you know, I, I appreciate that, brother, and thank the Lord for him. And, and you know, I, I appreciate you as well. You've given me so much time and, and what I consider to be a great and useful interview. Before I let you go, do you have any closing words that, that you want to share or, or anything you, you just want our listeners to hear before we wrap up? Yeah, I, I think I, I want um, people to hopefully um, recognize that as foreign as this concept may seem, you know, and, and as maybe um, radical as some of, you know, our atheistic friends in the gay community, um, and even now in evangelical churches, people who embracing a incorrect identity, I want people to come back to the truth, uh, grounded in scripture, recognizing uh, we're all broken, and recognizing the need for Christ uh, through it all. Because like I tell people, we need to make the main thing the main thing. What is the main problem? What is the main solution? My main problem, my biggest sin was not being in a same-sex relationship. My biggest sin was unbelief. And when we put this in context of the gospel, well, Christ's coming was to bring those from unbelief to belief by the power of the Holy Spirit. And then that helps us not simply just to recognize that it's just conversion, that that's all that Christ came for, but it's about holy living. It's about sanctification and what that means. And so I love what John Piper had said. He, I don't know if I can get the quote exactly right, but he talked about how grace is not simply forgiveness of sin, but grace is also the ability to sin no more. So grace is not just pardon, which it is, but it's also power. So I want our listeners now to recognize that, to not view just grace as, well, I'm saved, hallelujah, but grace is also this daily, daily power that we have because of our faith in Christ by grace, that we are able to then now to, to resist temptations and go sin no more, whether it is same-sex sexual temptations, or whether it is opposite sexual temptations, or whether it's gossiping or lying or cheating or whatever it is that God has provided us by the Holy Spirit the ability uh, to 
to go and flee temptation and put to death our indwelling sin and sin no more. That is a good word. Again, I recommend Holy Sexuality in the Gospels, Sex, Desire, and Relationships Shaped by God's Grand Story by Dr. Christopher Yuan. Recommend that to our listeners. Um, it is published by Multnomah, and it was published uh, late last year, so it's, it's a new book, uh, forward by Rosaria Butterfield, and uh, like many publishing companies, Multnomah has a, a bunch of endorsements in the front. You'll see a lot of familiar names like Kevin DeYoung, Eric Metaxas, Russell Moore, uh, Tim Challies, Colin Hansen in here, and, and all of them have wonderful things to say about the book, and for good cause, because as, as you could tell from this brief interview, this hour that we've spent together, this book is chock full of wisdom and, and, and applications of biblical truth to our particular historical moment, which seems to be wrestling with these issues at a greater intensity than ever before in church history. And I say that not as hyperbole or as exaggeration, but because it's true. This is, at least in the Western church today, the hot-button issue uh, facing um, Christian truth and, and the application of truth in the world. And you see a lot of confused applications. I think this is a very clear, biblically grounded, sound application of, of Christian truth. And you know what? I say that's the, the hot-button issue facing the Western church, but I had a, a brother of mine in Africa, not a biological brother, but a spiritual brother of mine in Africa, Christian man, um, comment on something on my social, one of my social media feeds, something along the lines of, please speak truth on this issue. It is, it is coming into Ethiopia or Uganda or wh whichever country in Eastern Africa he's in. It is coming into our country as well. We are dealing with it here. So before we know it, this problem uh, of confusion that we have in the West is going to eke out into the global South, in spite of the, the great defenses of the truth that we're seeing coming out of the global South, such as at the United Methodist Church General Conference this past week. Anyway, that is enough of my editorializing. You can get the book wherever books are sold, Amazon, uh, Westminster Books, uh, probably Barnes & Noble, wherever else. Um, please pick it up, give it a read, and then uh, give Dr. Yuan a shout at how much you appreciate it, just as I'm doing right now. Thank you again for, for joining me on the podcast today. This has been very helpful. Thanks for having me on, Zach. You've been listening to a production of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. For more information about the seminary, please visit www.gpts.edu.